you are listening to Sheep Might Fly, usually a podcast of serialised fiction written and read by Tansy Maine Roberts. But today we're doing something a bit different. This is another of my Ask Tansy episodes in celebration of the fact that I launched a Kickstarter this week. Um, the Time of the Cat Kickstarter is for a cosy science fiction novel about cats. It went up on Wednesday. It funded an hour and three minutes later. And don't think I'm going to stop talking about that three minutes because it does bug me. Uh, <laughs> see how spoiled I am? Uh, I'm talking to you now from early on Sunday morning. And the Kickstarter is at three times its initial goal, which is very exciting. But I also have like a long month ahead of me. Uh, it's always more exciting like in the first couple of days where you get a really big boost and then things sort of flatten out. So yeah, I've got to keep an eye on it and see how I can turn the buzz about this book into something, maybe a, you know, a larger scale project than I originally planned. Uh, it's very fun and exciting. Um, so I didn't think through when I planned to do this episode that it was coming in the day after the Tassie Indie Book Fair, which I went to yesterday, which does mean I spent all of yesterday talking to readers and answering questions, uh, which I had a great time. It was so fun. Um, it was down on the Brook Street Pier. It was my second time doing it, so I knew how to do it this time. Like I knew how to plan, uh, what kind, what numbers of books to bring, uh, to get my husband to drop me off rather than um, <laughs> trying to manage the car myself because you've got to like park a really long way away from the actual venue, all those little admin things. And of course the important secret, which is my my youngest daughter, my, my youngest child, Jemima, uh, who's now 13 and a half, is both available largely on Saturdays when netball isn't being played and is really good at setting up tables and book sales. So yeah, it was it's really helpful having someone else to straighten all the books and put them in aesthetically pleasing piles and say, no, this looks better. So otherwise I'd be sort of, yeah, flailing around a bit. So it went really smoothly. I felt like a professional. And yeah, it's also a very civilized fair. It starts at 10 and finishes at 3. Uh, which is very understanding of the hours in which people actually want to shop for things as opposed to the whole like, let's go to the market, but you've got to be there at 8am or you won't get a park. Yeah, so it was great. I was surrounded by other indie authors. It was exciting to see some old friends uh, and to see how many fantasy writers there are doing their own thing in Tasmania is always yeah, it makes me happy. So yes, I've done that. I've done a lot of talking and here I am more talking. If my voice gives out, that's why. So I did have to beg uh, various pockets of the internet for some questions uh, for this, this, but I got some great ones and I have learned from experience. It's important for me not to have a very long list of questions because I am not short when speaking off the cuff. Uh, so some of these questions are about the Kickstarter, which I requested, and also some are just general tansy questions. Uh, we'll see how we go. So Michelle asked, what are your cats like? Which is a very reasonable question, given that I am currently pitching a very heavily cat-themed book. And of course, as you know, 
all authors have cats. I am currently without cats, which is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. I grew up with cats. Uh, my mum has always had cats. And so I grew up in a cat household. And I haven't had a cat as an adult, largely. I mean, one of there are a lot of reasons of logistics and the fact that I am actually technically allergic and so are both my children is a big factor. But I think part of it as well is we, our lives have always just been a little bit chaotic, especially while the kids were growing up and it felt like one more thing. And now I think I'm in the stage of my life where I'm really starting to feel the the lack of it. Having said that, like my story, my, my history is full of cat stories. Uh, I grew up with so many cats, just so many. When I was a baby, my parents had four cats, all named after philosophers. Uh, and there are a disturbing numbers of pictures of me as a baby on like a sheepskin rug in the bush, surrounded by cats. I'm pretty sure those cats were like my Mary Poppins. So that's my, that's my origin story. Um, and yeah, every cat I've ever lived with, there's a story behind. And I have drawn on that a lot with writing Time of the Cat, particularly with like what kinds of cats I'm going to include in the story. Uh, we had an Abyssinian, for instance, who was full of hijinks, uh, as, as they are wont to do. Um, he would climb the curtains. He would actually use the toilet in a tidy and respectful way, like the literal human toilet, it was very disturbing. Uh, he fetch sticks, which is not what you expect in a cat. Uh, now, I have put an Abyssinian in my novel. Lovelace does not fetch sticks. She would like you to know that straight away. Uh, but yeah, my understanding of how cats are and how we love them and how they become part of our lives is very deep even though it does come mostly from my childhood my current uh closest to me cat is my mum's current cat loki who is you know he's a bit aloof as brothers go uh, but he is he is delightful and he is really the first cat that my mum actually took on who wasn't mine in some way uh, even though i've been uh, out of the house for at least 20 something something years uh 25 years no that can't be right yeah no that's right at least 25 years since i moved out uh but her cats especially her last few cats were just really long lived so the cats that she had when i left home she still had 10 15 years later um so loki's the first one who's like a step cat <laughs> I'm overthinking this too much. He's a black cat. He's lovely. He's getting a bit elderly now. But, um, yeah, he he's, he's a beautiful cat. Okay, I'm going to stop talking about cats now. Uh, Donna asked about the Kickstarter. How do you get over the fear imposter syndrome to start one? Also working out what you can offer for tears. Look. My way of doing things is often involves, I just really get into a project. Uh, I'm, 
I get referred to as an addict quite a bit by my husband when he sees me following my Kickstarter and delving into my Kickstarter. But you kind of have to be a level of obsessive to do something like this. Really, I mean, at this stage, I've done it so often that it's more what's holding me back from starting a new Kickstarter. Uh, I feel quite, I feel like a creaky old, uh, creaky old lady at the moment because so many of the people doing Kickstarter now are young and fresh and they've just started doing it in the wake of Brandon Sanderson or they've done it the last couple of years. Publishing Kickstarter has changed so much in the last couple of years. It's so, when we started and I was involved in a lot of Kickstarter campaigns before I even thought of doing my own solo one, which is my main advice, you know, find somebody else who's doing it and offer to help. Because by working behind the scenes, whether it was the 12 Planet campaigns, um, doing the co, uh, the shared project with Tahani that was Cranky Ladies of History, I learned a lot while having other people take on some of the scary pressures. Um, to the point where when we did Mother of Invention for 12 Planet, I was pretty much running that whole thing and I was able to do it because I had the experience, I knew what worked and what didn't. It's weird coming back to Kickstarter. Like I said, uh, it's been three, three and a half years because it was 2020 when I did my last one. Publishing Kickstarter has changed. There's a lot of resources. There's a lot of way of doing things that are a bit different to how we used to do things when we were just figuring it out ourselves because we got as much advice as we could. I still use a lot of the crowdfunding advice that I got from going to a possible um, seminar which thinking about it has to be like 10 or 12 years ago. And some of their advice still holds up, but there are new ways of doing things. And so I'm, I'm now like looking at these hot young authors and all the things that they're putting together. I think, Oh, I can learn from this. Um, but yeah, so how to get over the fear and imposter syndrome. One is experience, uh, follow other people's kickstarters. You should back, other people's Kickstarters. I know this is dangerous advice, you know, within financial reason. But some of the best advice I ever got about putting Kickstarters together was from people who are heavy backers. That's the other thing. Talk to people who use Kickstarter, who love it. Not necessarily even for books. Um, I remember uh, Chris was a fantastic advisor for us with early publishing Kickstarter because there wasn't a lot of advice on how to do Kickstarter for books because almost nobody did. It was a really small fraction of what Kickstarter did. But listening to somebody who backs a lot of games or backs a lot of other things and hear what they say about what they like, what they don't like, what they respond to, really helpful. So do your research. Volunteer as tribute to be a uh, unpaid intern on somebody's Kickstarter campaign. Absolutely. Um, helping with publicity, helping with making graphics under tight deadline. Graphics are really important. Uh, Canva is your friend. And even volunteering, if you can, physically for helping with the, the physical mail out. I see a lot of people afraid of the mail out stage of Kickstarter, which I understand. It's a bit daunting. Um, but the thing about deciding what you can offer for tiers, I've seen authors who do entire Kickstarters that are just digital rewards. I've seen ones that are just the book, which makes a lot of sense, especially when it's the book that has all the, like the fancy bells and whistles, like some of the wonderful campaigns happening at the moment. You know, you, 
you bring another $10,000 in and then there's suddenly there's a ribbon bookmark, there are all these sprayed edges, all these extra, I want to do one of those sort of campaigns uh, where you do a fancy, fancy schmancy version of a book that people already like. But I think, I don't know, I, I see why people streamline it. So, because it makes it easier, you're just posting one book or two books, you've got to figure that out. I like the messy rewards. Uh, it's something we always did in the early Kickstarters and other crowdfunding I was involved with. Um, putting in crafty things that are personal. I like nothing made me happier than when I finished making those 50 felt mice I made for the creature card <laughs> Kickstarter campaign and then got to photograph them in beautiful, like different pattern combinations. It was so satisfying. I like making stuff by hand and I like sharing that with book people. And I like having something like that that's really personal and unique in the rewards. And I do feel that's something that makes my Kickstarter special that people look to. I think if I did one now that was just the book people and playing it safe, um, I feel like my Kickstarter backers would be a bit disappointed. There's going to be a little bit of wild in there. Um, yeah, so I've had to shift things around a bit because of postage, but I wanted to make, I'm doing mini quilts this year. <clears throat> there goes my voice uh, for the, the Kickstarter because I wanted, I've been wanting to do postcard sized, like little crazy quilts for a long time. I really, I've been thinking about postcards a lot and postcards are a recurring theme in my time travel book that I am funding. So yeah, cat quilted postcards this time instead of the bookmarks. I've sort of centered on the bookmarks because I love making bookmarks. Also bringing my mum in, who is a very talented um, artist. She's been painting the Deepings dolls since the early 90s, late 80s maybe, uh, which is this beautiful, beautiful object of a piece of hand-turned uh, sassafras, Tasmanian sassafras, in the shape of a figurine and she paints them in pen and ink and creates characters and it's just wonderful. She started doing some really wild and creative uh, things herself the last couple of years uh, with some wonderful news designs, which is pretty awesome watching an artist who recently turned 80 uh, still continuing to stretch and challenge herself artistically and bring new things. I always tell her off when I find her drawing the dolls that she finds dull. And I'm like, no, at this point, you should only be making the art. Never mind whether we sell them or not. You should be. And we always sell her dolls, no matter what. Like, selling them is not a problem. I can sell as many as she paints. Uh, it's paint the ones that make you happy. Anyway, she's been crea she's been experimenting with these domes instead of the dolls, which are very much her creation, which she really likes. And she's incorporating words and things like that. Anyway, I asked her to create some Pendlebrook domes for my campaign, which she did. And she's drawn portraits of the cats, who are main characters, all over the domes. And they're just, they just make me happy. And those levels went really quickly <clears throat> in the Kickstarter. But again, it's one of those things that it makes it feel personal. So I like doing that. But I also like working with... Oh, wow, my voice. I'm just, sorry, water. <clears throat> I should probably edit out the coughing, but there we go. This is this is where I'm at at the moment. Uh, I've been working a lot with local, I say local artisans. I like using local businesses because I think 
Like if I'm going to do a candle, I'd rather have it be something that's uniquely Tasmanian so that people who are ordering from overseas get something that they can't quite get at home or it's just like a little bit different. So I've done a lot of projects with The Art of Tea in the past and they're the company that's going to be doing our tea. I found a company, uh, thanks to, shout out to Jack, who uh, worked with a ca- uh, the Hue and Candle Company for Terra Australis, I think for Showbangs, sometime in the last year or two. Uh, for her recommendations, so I've gone to them for the candles. Yeah, I, I like, and, and I'm always thinking of new things. Like, this is the fun part of a Kickstarter, figuring out new things. The actual finance part of the tier involves a lot of planning and thought and looking what other people are doing. You have to be very cautious with your tiers, not to overpromise or underplan, uh, because it's very easy to look at the amount of money you're asking and feel this is where the imposter syndrome comes in and feel that's too much. No one's going to pay that. Um, but you have to choose something and you have to have it realistic. One of the best pieces of advice I was given early on in working at Kickstarters was that as a rule of thumb, the price of your tier should be divided in half and half of it should be roughly the cost of the actual rewards in that tier. Or at least it certainly shouldn't be more than the cost of the rewards to produce. So the printing of the book, the printing of the enamel pin, the uh, the physical cost per unit of those rewards. And then the other side is the money that goes, the other half is the money that goes towards the project you are doing. So it might be things like paying the artist or um, the extra cost of uh, adding more bells and whistles to the book, or it might be the extra, all those sorts of things. The thing that the goal is trying, so half of it is the goal and half of it is the reward costs. And then ideally in that second half, at some point you're going to get some profit very unlikely to get any profit until after you pass your goal. That's the whole point. But at some point you should actually be, you know, earning something from all the work you're putting into this Kickstarter. But often what we do, of course, is we get to the stretch goals and we start putting value back into the the rewards, which is lovely, but you've got to be cautious about that 50-50. Now, it doesn't quite work anymore largely because when we started, we weren't allowed, Australians weren't allowed to use Kickstarter yet and we worked off possible Kickstarter's postage system kind of throws it all into array a bit (laughs) because the postage is a separate add-on, but it counts as part of your goal, which can mess up your numbers a little bit. But this general idea of a tier should always, you need to price that. So if your book is going to physically cost $15 to print, absolutely can't or you shouldn't be putting it in a tier for twenty dollars you know it's not how it works because you've got all this back end you've also got to think about fees and taxes and all those things um so it's balancing things the other advice i got really early on uh when doing possible which has proved to be really startlingly accurate still a decade later is that the average pledge for, for a crowdfunding campaign is about 50 bucks. So you should have something really good and or really basic about the campaign. 
at about the $50 mark. Weirdly, that is still the case. Like, I know I chose to put a $55 pretty solid level for this campaign, and that is absolutely the most popular, and it kind of always makes me smile to see that coming back. It is shifting a bit, <clears throat> and I think with non-book Kickstarters, where the main unit is much higher than that, those campaigns are, are different. Like, if it's $70 to get the book because it's because the book has been dipped in gold leaf and angel tears, then that's going to probably be the average for the campaign. But I've always worked around trying to think about $50 as an average. And then you kind of build from there. You've got to have things that are lower. You've got to have things that are higher. You always have to have a couple that are crazy high because it makes people feel better about pledging for the lower levels. And then sometimes people just pledge for them, which is startling and delightful and then you're like I have no upper tiers what do I do um it is a it's an inexact science I'm trying to work on keeping tiers simple not to have too many options add-ons have made things a lot easier it's a whole thing look at what other people are doing particularly people doing things in your category stalk kickstarters look at what you know what what kinds of things I'm really, I'm really interested in how many, how many authors now are doing really low campaigns, like ones where they, they're really only asking for a few hundred dollars. Um, it feels like a lot of work to go to for a few hundred dollars, honestly, but people are doing that. I think that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, stalk Kickstarter, back Kickstarters, work on Kickstarters, work up to doing your own. So Caroline asks... How are you feeling about your re-entry into the Kickstarter world? I feel like I just answered some of that. Um, it's exciting. I've forgotten how how much I enjoy the process of doing a Kickstarter. I did remember that they're fun, which is good. It's important to remember that. Um, they're also really scary and they do tap into my... I have a fairly... I have a tendency to get addicted to things... And I am quite an obsessive person. So it's not, it certainly wouldn't be healthy for me to do this more than once a year. Um, and maybe not even that often. It's when it's, you know, it's happening, it's exciting and it's great. But like five minutes after I've met a stretch goal, I'm like, why hasn't anybody pledged in the last five minutes? Is the project doomed? Um <laughs> Why has it plateaued? Nobody will ever pledge again for the whole rest of the campaign. It's hard on the obsessive person to be running a Kickstarter. But I am generally feeling good about it. I deliberately brought was thinking of this as a small campaign to get my feet wet again. Uh, because it's just doing like a single book. It's a, um, you know, I've got necessary costs around it but it's not like a huge ambitious thing it's not like the creature court where I was aiming for 15,000 and it was really stressful and I had to like you know I was worried about whether I'd get there and to date that's still my biggest campaign and it's also not like Castle Charming and it's interesting because I remembered that part of the reason I stopped doing Kickstarters for a while was because like the postage got stressful and it was COVID and it was a it was a rough year, 2020. 
But I'm thinking back and I'm thinking of a lot of reasons why that campaign, which was a successful campaign, it made twice its goal, but why have I already eclipsed what I did then in the last three days, four days? And it's like, well, people were also feeling really uncomfortable about Kickstarter at the time. There had been a lot of issues around the platform. Um, so a lot of people just weren't happy using it. And also it was the month that people were really starting to find out about COVID and everyone was scared. It wasn't a great time to be trying to sell books. Unfortunately for me, I always have to be selling books because that's what I do. Um, yeah, so this this has been really fun. Like Coming back to it, I've been loving how like the lovely response to the book. I always knew this would be a good book to crowdfund and I always knew that this cover art would make people happy. <laughs> um, it's also like the most elevator pitch I've ever had for a book, maybe since, you know, my gender swapped um, Musketeers in Space. That was quite a good elevator pitch. But apparently cats and time travel, like that's all I have to tell people. Um, it was lovely at the Indie Fair last yesterday because I printed up these postcards of the cover art so I could tell people about my Kickstarter. And it meant I had the lovely experience of seeing people walk past and stop and see that cat with the goofy Viking cat helmet on his head stop and react. And then this is what's been happening online. But seeing it in person was really lovely. So yeah, I love the energy of a Kickstarter. There's something about, it makes it feel more like an event and it feels like a community coming together. Seeing all these names coming in and pledging, many of whom are people who have supported my other things, the people I know through my Patreon. Uh, and there's also like old friends who I haven't seen for five years because I haven't been at conventions. Uh, there's people talking about me online who... I haven't heard from in ages. It's just, it just feels so nice. <laughs> um, it's, it does. It's like a book launch that lasts for a month, um, which comes with all the, you know, stress and problems that might create, but it does feel like a gathering and it certainly feels like, cause I've been self-publishing for a while now and I've just put out books and I don't celebrate every single one I don't do big events for every single one because you'd burn out and there's only so many times you can ask people to come to a party celebrating you and asking them to buy books like I've decided I probably can't do that more than once a year because that's silly but I'm putting out four books a year so they don't all get I'm giving them cakes but I'm not giving them all parties and I'm not giving them all fanfare and the kickstarter is just yeah, there's so much energy and enthusiasm and excitement around this book. Um, and you don't get that with every release. And I haven't even released it yet. So that's why I do this. I enjoy the energy. But much like a book launch, you have to pace yourself. I wouldn't do this with every book. I wouldn't want to. But I am planning next year's project, which is going to be a lot more ambitious than this one. Um, it's going to have bigger goal, bigger plans, bigger um, bigger achievement. Ambitious is going to be the word for 2024. Had to stop and think about that. Yeah. Ambitious in 2024. Cozy in 2023. That's where we're at right now. Uh, but on the whole, I'm feeling pretty good. I have not been scared off. 
and are very inspired to keep going. But no more than once a year, people. Stop me if you see me going completely off the rails. Okay, that is three questions in under half an hour. I think that's better than last time, honestly. Oh, Caroline also said she... Uh, no, sorry, this isn't Caroline. Erin said, I'd like to know more about the time travel tea blend. Well, yes, we'd all like to know more about the time travel tea blend. <clears throat> I'm not saying it's not a great question. It is a great question. However, I've promised I'm not going to talk about that until the campaign hits 10,000, which sounds mean, but actually we're only, like we're really close now. So I think we're going to get there in the next couple of days. What I will say is that um, I've worked with The Art of Tea, which is a local business before. They're lovely. I actually went down there to collect a box of tea for a different Patreon-related um, sort of project uh, yeah, on Friday, two days ago. And I've been talking to Samantha, who is the entrepreneur who runs Art of Tea. I've seen her speak in public and stuff. She's really, really interesting. Uh, but I had a lovely time looking around because I was like, I'm doing this Kickstarter. I'm offering tea as a reward. We'd already set up that that was the thing I was doing. However, I haven't yet picked the tea. All I've said is tea for time travellers. So I need to figure out what that is. And I had some ideas. Um, and it's like, well, what do you have with this? And... They were showing me like all the different teas and the jars and I got to like sniff a whole bunch of different teas and decide which ones I wanted to take home to try. So over the next few days, and I might have to get a wriggle on, um, I'm going to be sipping tea. I know life as an author is so hard and making the decision about what tea for time travelers is actually going to be. And the other thing that I'm going to unlock at that that, that $10,000 stretch goal is I decided I'm going to do two teas, not just one, because, it you know, it's nice to have a cool surprise. But, you know, people do have preferences when it comes to tea. I figure if I can give people a choice, they could choose one or the other. <clears throat> and there will be an option for people to have both as an add-on if that's something they want um, I may not be able to offer that to a backer kit but I will offer that but yeah so so that's exciting I have one really strong idea and one I'm still working through but I do have to figure it out in the next day or two because we're already at 9,200 uh, so I'll be doing some urgent tea sipping luckily it's Mother's Day today so I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to do any work Apart from this podcast, it's fine. They're all asleep. They don't know. Um, <laughs> my son actually said, we're going to do some some sort of brunch thing. And I was like, that's fine. You know, I'm pretty easy going. And he said, you know, we will send you back to bed because <laughs> he knew I'd be up early. So I'll send you back to bed to, to have breakfast in bed like late morning. And I'm like, that sounds way better than the thing for... I hate like waiting for breakfast in bed when it's like eight in the morning and I've got stuff to do. Um it's and he but he actually said yeah we won't force you to spend your whole morning in bed that's where the kickstarter isn't that would be torture for you which is like a beautiful insight into my character and my son's understanding of where my head is at this month so so that's nice uh i can't remember 
what I was, oh yes, tea sipping. I've got to factor some of that in for today. I was going to sit on my couch and read my book and I will be sipping some tea. Um, okay, so Caroline asked me a bunch of questions, which is lovely because I was a bit desperate for them. She says, I think all of your recent books have been indie or self-pub and it seems to be a route that works for you. Is there anything you'd like to talk about around that? And do you think that'll continue to be your preferred route? Okay, so that's pretty much something I spent all of yesterday talking about at the Tassie Indie Author Book Fair. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I love being an indie publisher. Like, I'm so, I love the level of, <clears throat> I don't know, I like the business of making books. I always have. I've always been interested in writing books and I love to write. But I'm not one of those authors who only really wants to sit at a table and write and then have everybody else do other things for me. I find the business really interesting. It's why when my first um, my first publishing experience, my first couple of books that got published, ended up kind of not going anywhere and I was sort of left without a publisher again, the thing that got me excited about books and writing again was the small press publishing community and conventions and I learned so much through that so I've always been interested in the production of books and how the world of books is changing like we saw the rise of ebooks um, I was talking on radio uh, earlier this week and one of the things that came up was I mentioned um, shiny, which I haven't thought about in a long time, but it was a young adult zine that Elisa and Ben Payne and I um, tried to do. And it was this whole idea of a, an e-zine for young adult science fiction fantasy stories. And it was such a great idea. And it was so slightly before its time. Um, you know, it was before, so we were still having to sell people on the concept of what an e-zine was. Um, and certainly the young adult market, and it just, it just didn't quite take off. Like, really proud of the work that we did, but we never, like, got it to the stage we wanted to as far as readership and stuff, and I think part of that was because, um, you know, it was still, everything was still too new. Like I said, I remember doing a Kickstarter, waiting for Kickstarter to open to um, Australians, and planning a project and not knowing if it was like next month, the month that Kickstarter was going to let Australians run campaigns or were we going to still be with Possible, who, you know, have been great in many ways, but they are a smaller outfit. Um, yeah, so I've been there at the beginning of a lot of different changes and shifts in the publishing well, doing a lot of behind the scenes stuff with small presses through community, like, uh, Andromeda Spaceways. I was in this. I found a lot of my dear friends who I'm still friends with now, um, or I will be if we ever see each other again. <laughs> but you know, I learned so much from that experience. I love the physical making of books, making decisions, picking cover art, uh, picking people to work with. So actually, I've been heading here for a really long time. It's just that. Um, actually get to the stage of feeling brave enough to call myself an indie author or a self-publishing author, that did take a little bit of step because there was, while I love being involved in publishing, 
there was still that stigma around being a self-published author and people not seeing it as being quite real as when a publisher published it, even if that publisher was just one person in a room and you as the author are just one person in the room and actually when it comes down to it, it's not much difference um, depending on the various skill sets. So yeah, I'm, I'm all about the indie publishing now. I love it. I'm not 100%. Some of my books are still with a publisher uh, in print and every now and then I have a project... For instance, uh, Gorgon's Deserve Nice Things, which was published in March, which is my lovely little short story collection. I could have published that myself, but I decided to send it to Brain Jar because I really like what Brain Jar are doing. Um, I really like Peter's energy and the way that uh, that he and, and, and Sarah as well, um, the way that they think about books, the way that they pivot for new things, the way that they promote their books. It's kind of nice to put your hands in somebody else and watch them actually promote it, which is not always the experience with traditional publishing. Uh, But, you know, Brain Jar aren't traditional publishing. They're another little ninja indie outfit like me. Um, And there is, let's face it, a little bit more still cachet about having a short story collection published by an editor who is not you uh and I think a short st- I I want this is a book that I loved I wanted it to get a little bit more attention than perhaps it would if it was just just another book that Tansy put out this year so yeah and I think it worked brilliantly like <clears throat> it certainly had a lot more interest and attention um I think than it would have done Otherwise, it was just another Tansy book. Um, and I love the cover. And it's been lovely seeing new people find me because of Brain Jar Press. So we'll see whether it sort of, you know, disappears or keeps building. But it's worth doing. It's worth finding people I want to. Like, I still send stories to editors. Um, these days, it's very rare for me to send stories if people haven't actually asked for it. But I still submit the occasional story to Uncanny, who is still who is my, my favourite magazine to submit to, even if submitting to them is sometimes a little bit like shooting a rocket ship through a needle. You've got to wait for the window to open. Um, I love, I've been really enjoying working with um, uh, Clandestine and Improbable Press. Uh, I've known Lindy for a long time. Uh, Athlan, who's come in with Improbable Press, and Narelle, who's a very dear friend, going way back. They've been editing some fantastic anthologies. And I love an anthology. I love being invited to be in an anthology because I like being asked to do things. Um, even if I can't do it, I really like being asked. Uh, but I love a theme anthology because often I end up writing something I wouldn't have written otherwise. And yeah, so I've been excited to do stuff for their anthologies uh, I'll continue to do that from time to time. Uh, yeah, I, I like working with, with fellows. I've been thinking about my crime books and it's like I'm writing this indie crime, but am I actually up to publishing another whole genre and making the worst of it, making the best of it? Or would I be better off with my next crime series, my next crime book, actually trying for a traditional publishing deal because they do still like crime, even if nobody publishers you know nobody big publishes fantasy in Australia unless it's dystopia um but or YA which I have accepted I'm not going to be a YA author 
because <laughs> uh, you can't have everything in Tansy. But yeah, I've been thinking about sending books elsewhere. It will happen sometimes, but I love publishing myself. I like making the choices, working with the artists, picking who you collaborate with, picking my editor, all that stuff. Finding new people to work with. At the moment, I'm working with a really cool company, uh, Audio Factory, who are doing my audiobook. Uh, first proper audiobook. Uh, which is, yeah, that, that's going to be really cool. I, I love books. So, yeah, I'm here and I really like the Tazzy Indie author book fair like sitting there with all my books laid out and thinking about next year and what we're going to do for my table next year how many more books I'm going to have out between now and then it's exciting uh yeah and it's it's kind of almost made up for four years without science fiction conventions I need to think about that too because I kind of want to go back all right Caroline also asks do you have any media consumed or anything in fandom you would like to squee about? Since you don't currently have uh, Galactic Suburbia or Verity as an outlet for such things. Yes, I absolutely do. Always. And you can always ask me this on any social media and I probably will ask unless I have an episode of this coming up and I need to save it for the podcast. So probably the thing I've been most fanish enjoying lately has been the second season of Schmigadoon, or uh, also known as Schmicago. We watched the first season as a family, which was very exciting because there aren't many shows that we watch as a family and everyone is kind of really into it equally, especially my kids. Uh, when we find a show, we hang on to it. And we were very lucky in the last few months we really got into uh, Always Sunny in, in Philadelphia which was good because it was a 15 season show so as a family we didn't have to make a decision about what we were watching for over dinner time for like months it was great and now we've run out and we're bereft but Schmigadoon was a show we watched yeah when it first came out and loved it my kids are both theatre kids my son in particular has a lot of well my son has a lot of interest in a lot of musicals. My daughter is, since since we watched the first season, the new season, um, I was excited when I saw the, okay, I'll start from scratch. So Schmigadoon is a comedy musical TV series. It's on Apple Plus. It's completely about, it's a love letter to old musicals. And the cast are extraordinary. And they're also like theatre people and comedians. And it's just glorious. And part of, why we loved the first season so much was it had people we were interested in. My son has a long history with Broadway fandom. And so he got very excited about um, certain characters. We all love Alan Cumming, who is just like a performer that we all love. Um, yeah, it was just a great, cool show. And my friend Louise was really interested in it too. So we ended up rewatching it all with her. And it was just a really fun time. Second season dropped few weeks ago a month ago and I knew I found out that it was going to be based on more of the 70s grungier darker musicals like Cabaret in Chicago and I was so excited because I knew that Bailey would be like really really into this because he's quite deeply immersed himself in a lot of these musicals and I was excited because I knew a lot of them too 
Uh, but he wouldn't let me tell him anything about the upcoming season, even stuff that was in the trailer. It was, I was like, nope, mother, nope, nope, nope. So I held on to it for a really long time. I did accidentally say the word Chicago at one point, and I felt very bad about it. But anyway, so watching it with my kids, and it was so cool because not only was Bailey really excited by all the references to all the musicals that he loves and has seen that I don't know, uh, which is fun to watch, but Jemima, my youngest, has been learning music in quite a serious way over the last couple of years. And as it turns out, like we found out last night she may actually have perfect pitch. She certainly has, since playing the trombone, she has a much deeper understanding of how music works on a technical level than anyone else in this family. And it was just like, well, this is new. I did not know this about you. <laughs> But it's gorgeous. The second season is gorgeous. It's a lot of the, most of the same cast came back, but there's some great new characters. It's funny and it uses music in a way that is delightful, um, which I really enjoy. Like I also loved Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is a show that does the same thing, uh, but with more feminism. This one also has, like it has really interesting commentary on um, the world and diversity and problematic content and all that sort of stuff. It's done so smartly and so well, and and just getting to see fantastic stage, you know, stage performance people with those skills doing a really high quality piece of television, like Jane Krakowski and her legs. Uh, she is extraordinary in this. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's so good. Uh, Titus, can't remember his last name, but the performer who plays the narrator in the new season, so good. I just love it so much and it does make me want to go back and watch musicals that I've seen but also musicals that I haven't seen like I'm watching thinking I haven't seen Pippin before I think I need to and Bailey is like oh I think you need to like he's I'm like Bailey do I need to watch Company and it's like obviously all the time yes is the answer so yeah uh yeah it's 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 fun so that's like the thing I've been most fanish about lately um I would also like to give a shout out to Karen Healy, who is um, a New Zealand author who we, I'm sure we used to talk about her work when she first had young adult books coming out. Um, and we met Karen, uh, at, she was living in Australia for a while, so we met her at science fiction conventions and things like that. Um, she has come back to publishing and writing after a while away. And she's launching herself as an indie author and she's been putting out some really cool books. And I want to tell you about them all week. I finished her new book, which isn't out yet, finished it a week ago. And I've been meaning to sit down and write my thoughts about it all week. And I've been so busy with the Kickstarter and everything. And I feel so bad. So I'm just going to blurt it here and then I can go type it up and finally send a blurb to, to Karen. So she's got two. The first series she's doing is uh, referred to as the Wellywood series, I want to say. Uh, and I'm just trying to look up the details so I can like, tell you about it. Um, see, this is, look, brilliant live audio. Okay, so the Wellywood magic is a really cute modern day paranormal romance series it's the first book is set is called bespoke and bespelled it's set in new zealand 
it's about a main character who is a costume designer on uh, or a wardrobe person in really Hollywood big Hollywood films and and TV series and how she is lured home for a news big New Zealand production of a massive highly funded uh, Gaslamp fantasy series based on a series of books. So it has this really cool aspect of the meta fandom within it, of the fake the fake book series they're talking about, the film that's based on the book, all those little details and in-jokes that come from creating a fake fandom, uh, which I love as a trope. But also it's just a really fun, it's a novella, uh, it's about the main character is a stitch witch, so she has a history of particular kinds of, of, of magic, she's really good at magical clothes, Somebody has cursed the production or has done something. Somebody's trying to sabotage the production. Uh, and so while she's running on all gears, trying to sort out all costuming disasters, she's also trying to solve the mystery of who's trying to sabotage this film uh, with the help of the very handsome lead actor who is very grumpy. And it's just, it's just, it's really fun. It's a fast read. It hits so many buttons of things I like to read about. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's got these sort of New Zealandy kind of in-jokes as well of, of a, a place that has certainly its cultural, um, reputation has been shaped by being the place where a lot of fantasy TV was, and, and films were, were filmed. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. The first one is out, Bespoke and Bespelled, but... Karen is also launching a new pen name, Terribly Brave, um, with a series of contemporary romances. And I wanted to tell you about this. This is one that's not out yet, but you can pre-order it. So it's contemporary romance, but it's based on the Greek myths. It's so smart and clever and done so well. I just can't believe how jealous I am that somebody else wrote these books. But I'm excited because... Clearly she wrote them for me and she's going to keep writing them. It's very exciting. Um, there is a story you can download if you join Karen's newsletter. I recommend you run and do it. If signing up to the newsletter doesn't give you the story, just keep emailing her until she sends it to you. It's called Penny... Um, oh, I'm trying to remember. You know, it's, it's Penelope... Uh, what is it? Penelope something something. Anyway, it's it's the Penelope story. You absolutely have to um, have to read it. It's great. You don't need to for the series, but it introduces you to the world and to the concept by means of telling you the Trojan War, um, you know, retelling the Trojan War as a. Um, I'm trying to explain it. <laughs> Look, it's a, a destination wedding disaster contemporary romance between Penelope and Odysseus as they're running around trying to help uh, help and or hinder the marriage of Menelaus and Helen. Uh, it's, it's just really funny and it's really smart and it's so thoughtful and I thought, well, I really love this. So, abs oh, Penelope pops the question. That's what it's called. I really love this. I thought, I'm probably not going to like the rest of the series as much. The first one's about Persephone. Mm, yeah, no, I mean, give me give me Penny. I just want all the books about Penny. I love Penny. This is it. Um, 
And her afterward, after the novella, talking about some of the choices she made, and I'm like, oh, she just understands the Greek myth so much. But she is doing a contemporary take. She's taking everything that's potentially problematic about the dynamics of relationships from Greek myths and making them cool and smart and interesting. I'm like, okay, I'll read the book. So I sat there and I read um, the first book in the series called Persephone in Bloom by Kate Healy. And it's so good. I read it in like two days. I didn't want to do anything else. Um, yeah, the, the world building is so fun because it is this massive uh, steel and glass skyscraper building dedicated to Olympus Publishing. Um, it's like a dream uh, Days of Our Lives version of what glamorous publishing is like. So you've got that. And then all the characters are based on Greek myth characters in ways that are funny and clever and thought-provoking. And yeah, I just want to watch this world. I want to see this world uh, conveyed as a series of glamorous uh, TV movies. (laughs) So if you're going to romanticise Hades and Persephone, which is not something I always... I understand the drive to do so. I usually go in a different direction. Um, Really, it it is interesting. I saw somebody talk about this recently because I know Greek myth retellings are very popular. You kind of have to either make Hades the bad guy or Demeter the bad guy, Um, usually to make the story work in a sympathetic way. And this book does kind of lean towards Demeter as certainly the more toxic person and Hades as a much less problematic figure than he is in the myths and that is a choice that the author made and you make the choice if you're going to do romance because let's face it we don't want to read contemporary romance about Hades and Persephone in which he is her abusive uncle like nobody wants to read that book um but yeah no the choices were so interesting and even though I am 100% team Demeter and team series in every other version of the story this one made me absolutely team Persephone uh it's so interesting because it looks at the idea of being being an intern being a nepo baby um you know trying to avoid nepotism in a world where you are born into privilege but also it's an intern relationship where she falls in love with the guy who's the brother of of Zeus who is the boss of the entire company and what I really enjoy about these books is that rather than shy away from the problematic aspects of that kind of dynamic which we see in a lot of romance like any kind of billionaire romance for instance there are power imbalance but this whole book is about power imbalance and how to negotiate it like what happens when you awkwardly fall in love with somebody for whom there is a power dynamic imbalance that is a problem, but you still want to be with that person. How do you negotiate that? And I really like how much of the book is about that negotiation. It's about overcoming those very real problems that, you know, in a world where kind of feels like for a lot of people, the only way to meet a romantic partner is on an app or at their job. Um, (laughs) 
you know, these problems do come up and they are questioned. And I think it's really interesting and fun and sexy to have those problems examined and questioned in fun, entertaining ways rather than just pretending they don't exist. Yeah, so it's a very smart book, but I don't even think that it's like lecturing you because it's also just really fast-paced, fun to read, very sexy. And the characters, I just love the characters so much. I'm trying to find a way in my review I'm going to write for, for Karen or Kate Healy um, and my blurb to compare it to Ted Lasso in a way that isn't like patronizing or insulting because I love Ted Lasso and I love this book and some of what I love about both those things are the same thing and it's like workplace comedy characters that you fall in love with and want to keep spending time with um, all that sort of thing Uh, but also a show or a, a book that comments on ethics and uh, diversity and all those sort of important real life issues in ways that is funny but also real yeah I haven't found a way to put that into a one sentence blurb so witness me I'm I'm a work in progress so pre-order Persephone and Bloom it's coming out let me see oh crap it's coming out in May in May 23rd I need to get this blurb written um <laughs> It's coming really soon, you guys. That's like a week and a bit away. Pre-order it now, though. Um, it's absolutely worth it. And there's going to be a whole series. We've got little hints of uh, Aphrodite uh, in this and, and Hephaestus, uh, who are both characters who are, I'm assuming, going to be the, uh, the lead in the next romance. I'm really quite excited, uh, particularly the... Yeah, that that that's they're really interesting characters, um, and a, there was a hint I think at the back of the book that Hera might be getting the third book, and I'm so excited because hundred percent whoever she is paired with, I don't know, and I don't want to spoil things, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to be Zeus because he has burned those bridges. Uh, okay, <laughs> uh, yeah. I will stop talking fanishly now because I can keep doing that all night. We do need to wind this up, but Caroline asked, also asked me, do you still engage with the Hugo Awards at all? Uh, Galactic Suburbia and other podcasts were a big reason I got into it around a decade ago, but I've lost track more recently. Yeah, me too. Uh, look, it's cool. I like seeing it go past, but I'm not as obsessive about it now that I've sort of dropped out of honestly once Galactic Suburbia ended I was paying a lot less attention partly that's because I'm not reading in the same way Uh, I've gone back to a more stately pace of reading I've been trying to deactivate myself from this idea that you need to be reading stuff as soon as it comes out in order to stay relevant and I've been just sort of doing my own thing uh, I think we've been learning a lot about Backlist this week in particular with the Amal El Motar um, and Max Grimm, the, 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 the how we lost the time war wave of success. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, and I've been reading a lot of stuff that isn't Hugo related or relevant. And I kind of feel honestly like 
I haven't been that Hugo relevant for a long time. So yeah, I'm kind of, especially with my focus on indie publishing, uh, a lot of which doesn't really get noticed by that stuff, by, by those, those worlds. I've, I've been looking at other ways to sell books and to, uh, to promote books. So the Hugos are always have a soft part in my heart and I'm going to go back to them. Obviously I just don't pour down the lists quite as, minutely and part of it as well is ever since the world con i didn't get to go to in 2020 i've been also feeling quite disconnected from the convention world because i've been here in tasmania and i've been trying to put more energy into my local networks for the sake of self uh preservation if nothing else you know if i couldn't travel i didn't want my heart to be <laughs> all the way around the world so i've been sort of focusing a lot on the here and now, but I am, like I said, thinking about going back to conventions and paying attention. So, you know, watch this space, but I haven't really been paying much attention to Hugo's the last couple of years, but I'm sure they're fine without me. Um, now I need to have one more question, which, so Kay, who was the one who I talked about in the last Ask Tansy episode, who pointed out the horrendous cake related error in Musketeer space in time for me to fix it. So thank you for that, Kay. Uh, they also asked me another question, which I failed. I think I failed to answer or I, I didn't answer in time. So the question was, if you aren't run another Ask Tansy, I'm curious about how you select the time period or technology level for each of your universes. It seems to really add to the stories and be quite distinct. That's a really nice question. I like the way it's sandwiched in a compliment. Um, it's a compliment wrapped in a compliment, which is delicious. I love history. I've been thinking a lot about my branding as an author because it's always been something I didn't have. Uh, everything I wrote was different. But more and more, the stuff that I'm proudest of and the stuff that I feel most connected to as a writer is the stuff that has some kind of connection to history. And when I started following my thread of all of my books, like most of my fantasy books and some of my science fiction, to be honest, has some connection to history. Uh, it's a big part of how I world build. And yeah, it's, it's something that I love to do. And it's something that I enjoy as a consumer as well, like costume dramas are my absolute favorite thing apart from reality shows where people are restoring chateaus which is my other favorite thing and that's history too um yeah it's so funny that in my day job I've ended up in a world a lot of which is about looking at historical rest restoration of you know graves and things <laughs> history is great the only thing that doesn't quite fit into that is probably the Belladonna U books but they connect to other things that I'm really kind of engaged in but yeah, I am moving more deeply into the historical influenced stuff, as you can see by the time travel novel I'm currently funding, Time of the Cat. Uh, yeah, partly how I choose how I choose which historical period is a feeling, and it's sometimes that's what comes first. Creature Court, of course, was the big one where I was really quite deliberate about it. I wanted a 1920s feel about the whole series. I was very much writing epic urban fantasy, 1920s. But I also built into that 
elements from other time periods that were really important to me and that I was interested in, particularly the the theatre world of the 19th century uh, and the Roman religious festival stuff, which was from ancient Rome. Uh, and my contemporary experiences walking around Rome as a city, because that's how I built Alfla. So yeah, that was probably one of the more complicated ones. And teacup magic started as a an impulse. I didn't really think about it at all. I bought the cup, first cover as a pre-made, came up with the title, Tea and Sympathetic Magic, loved it so much, thought, okay, what does that actually mean, Tansy? And I liked Jane Austen-y stuff, and I started immersing myself more in Regency. And I wrote that book, well, I wrote that story, and I had fun with it. And then I'm like, this is a series. So now I'm very much awash in the fact that my most popular successful series is very deeply Regency. I love it. Partly it makes me feel like I probably shouldn't do other Regency things because this is where all my Regency thoughts go. But I love the rise of Gaslamp fantasy and this, you know, it's exciting. We now have a subgenre. I wanted to write more that counted as, as, as Gaslamp fantasy. Having said that, with the Sparks and Filters series, which is very Victorian, that predates Tea and Sympathetic Magic. I've been working on what I used to call my great steampunk novel for a very long time, uh, and it wasn't until I figured out it was actually a series of novellas that it made sense to me structurally, and now it does, and it's fabulous. But it's been really nice having something else. Okay, this is my deep Victorian. I did actually pick, because Victorian is a long time, especially compared to Regency, I do have specific years and timelines and it's fully alt-universe. So there are fantastical elements with that that I've changed around. I never like to stick just to one historical period and exactly what would be accurate for that period because that involves, well, for a start, an awful lot of work. Um, but also it's hard to say and it's less fun. So, for instance, my teacup magic... It has a lot of Regency elements to it, but it's also going to be a bit more progressive and certainly there'll be corners of it that are a lot more progressive um, for women, for queer people, for people of colour than the real Regency probably was, uh, largely because otherwise it's really stressful to write. And that's what I was writing cosy. You know, I, I want life to be a little bit easier for people, even though there are definitely, you know, tensions and stresses and challenges. I don't want to be writing about the really unpleasant stuff, but I don't also don't want to make it a book or a series that excludes the possibility. So yeah, anyway, so I, 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 I changed things up a bit. I always have. So with Sparks and Filters, because it's, it's Victorian, it's a really specific year in the 19th century, but it doesn't have Victoria. It has a different queen and that means automatically that what we think of as Victorian is going to budge a bit especially with all the magical elements um, of the world building the use of love filters in particular but I am leaning into that historical period quite hard because because that's where you find some of the crunchier ideas so then there's my gargoyle mysteries which I've also been referring to in my head as the curse verse they're slowly well You've all only read, if you have, the first book in the series, which is uh, the novella 
Curse of Bronze, which is available free to download from my website. And that's the story of Bella Hathaway and how her curse-breaking aunt is murdered and she tries to solve it and it's got Beauty and the Beast elements and sensible skirts and archaeology. And I haven't actually, like, I kind of had a general, I want this to be a 1930s, 1940s kind of feel. But I hadn't really pinned down the history of that because it was the first novella. And now I'm writing it as a series of short stories and novellas. And I need to put a lot more thought into the world building beyond that one house and that one street. I think it's going to be, because there's a big 25-year time gap, which is really important, because if you haven't read the story, say it's set in a sort of 1930s thing, there's a really important significant event that happened 25 years earlier. And in my head, that was like Edwardian, the height of the irresponsible archaeologist as a trope. Uh, that kind of era. So that kind of works out, but I need to put a lot more thought into it because I'm writing the second full novella later this year for Patreon. Um, and I've written at least one side story. I'm writing stories about Bella's sisters. I've got a gargoyle cover I bought on an impulse that I'm going to have to use at some point because it's really beautiful. Uh, the artist is Ukrainian and it, paying for that piece of art was one of the most difficult business transactions I've ever done last year but I achieved it and now I need to use the cover because it's so beautiful and yeah sometimes that's how I write cover first uh yeah so time period and technology level I do think about these things a lot sometimes I feel these things and then I go back in the editing process and I put a lot more work into the back end one of the technology technological issue is sort of an interesting one with the creature corp I was mostly thinking about sewing machines and it was quite late in the day I realised they needed trains uh, between the cities and that became quite an important element, particularly with Bazep, which is my steampunk city, which is a little bit more technologically advanced than the others. And you actually have things like motor cars. Writing historical influenced fantasy that includes motor cars feels really subversive for some reason I haven't quite put my finger on, but... But yeah, I like thinking about technology usually comes in with transport, um, which is, it's important. And there are so many interesting historical elements to that. So the thing that I've been thinking of and world building, and I haven't got there yet, and I'm not going to for a while, but Teacup Magic was always supposed to be a prequel series to a story about, uh, or a series rather, about the Nine Muses. Uh, so I had this whole idea, I'd do like a romance fantasy type thing. Each book would have a different muse. They're all sisters. That's why Mnemosyne is called Mnemosyne, because she's the mother of the muses. And I I kind of came up with her doing her story first. And then I decided <laughs> I didn't want to lump her with it because she's such an interesting person. I've enjoyed her journey. And she, now she's married. And I'm like, I... Look, I like next generation stories, but I am not going to lump this woman with nine kids. I'm sorry. She's got stuff to do. So I made the decision, which is probably going to be starting to become obvious for people who read uh, Have Spirit. No. Have Spirit, Will Duchess. 
my new teacup magic book, number five, which comes out next month, uh, the Juno book, the, you will notice like babies are going to get named in that, in the book. Uh, so my now eventual plan is that between them, the ladies of oh, Neem and her, her cousins, uh, which includes Henry, so that includes Juno, um, between them there will be nine kids and those kids are going to kind of, not necessarily daughters, but kids, and they're going to grow up um, together as cousins and eventually I will write my muse series. And I kind of always assumed that would also be Regency and then I thought about the timeline, that, well, no, that's going to be Victorian, isn't it? Then the other, and so it's just it's just notebook stuff at this point. I haven't written anything. All I've done is named the characters, and that's the easy part because they're already named. But I've been reading P.G. Wodehouse lately, and it occurred to me that in the Teacup Magic world, which I'm going to keep writing, by the way. I don't think I'm going to stop writing Teacup Magic books. I know where I'm going after the sixth one, and it's exciting. I'm going to stay in that time period. But at some point, I want to write the series about the next generation. And it occurred to me reading, I was reading A Damsel in Distress, which is a standalone P.G. Wodehouse book. And it was so fun and interesting. But also I was thinking about the world building. And this is set like just before the 1920s. It's like 1919 or something. And that whole era of like aristocracy beginning to fade and interesting technology coming in like planes and cars and flappers and I was like maybe maybe the teacup maybe the teacup aisles are gonna skip the Victorian era wouldn't that be fun if you went straight from the Regency to like late Edwardian and yeah and I really like that idea so as it history has its hold on my heart. I'm reading a lot more nonfiction than ever before. So I want to finish up by telling you a story. When uh, my first book was published, I was invited to a one-day convention that was actually run by a bookshop manager owner called Karen Miller, who went on to become one of, you know, the more significant Australian fantasy authors of the early 2000s. Um, but this was the late 90s, so she was running a one-day event in Parramatta. I'd never been to Parramatta before. I'm not convinced I've ever been to Parramatta, honestly. I was driven there in a car. I don't know. It was a one-day event, and the authors who were being highlighted were Sarah Douglas, Terry Pratchett, and David Gemmell. And that's a little sad sort of thought, because they're all gone now. But... It was fascinating seeing these authors talk to each other about the process. And they all had radically different ways of what they did things. But one of the things they all kind of agreed on, which shocked me to my core, was that they all mostly read nonfiction. They didn't really read fiction, and they didn't really read much fiction in the genre they were writing. At the time, as a judgmental 20-year-old, I was a little bit outraged because I do strongly believe you need to write in, read in your genre. However, the thing I didn't factor in was that these were 
writers who were in their 40s and their 50s and they'd read a lot already. And I think you do get to a stage where you're like, I don't actually need to read any more of that right now. I'm reading other things. I'm finding other things interesting. And the idea of reading nonfiction for fun as a 20-year-old, you know, university student, again, bewildered me. Because, yeah, I would sometimes read nonfiction for fun, but I read so much more fiction. It was, like, completely who I was as a person. And now I turn 45 in, like, a week and a half. Uh, eight days, actually. There we go. <laughs> I'm so interested in reading nonfiction right now. Like, I think we're in a golden age of nonfiction. Like, some of the history that is happening right now, uh, particularly social history, which has always been the history of my heart, it's just so good. There's so many interesting things. There's so many things about his the Victorian era and the early 20th century and the Regency era and the Georgians. Uh, I haven't even got started on my Georgian series that's going to happen at some point. There's so much stuff coming out that's so different to the history that I was reading 30 years ago. (laughs) Because history changes and what we decide to value and look at in history changes. And that's really exciting. So yeah, my my current pile of books that I'm partway through includes like the first India Halton book. It includes... um, I'm doing a big Anne of Green Gables reread. I'm really into P.G. Wodehouse right now, despite the fact that kind of makes me sound like that sort of person who's really into P.G. Wodehouse right now. Um, I'm reading contemporary romance, but I've also got like about, like from here I can see the books I'm currently partway through. I'm obsessively, obsessively reading a massive book about the history of Agatha Christie as a playwright, I'm reading a book about Princess Louise, the most interesting of Queen Victoria's daughters. How did I not know about this woman? She's so interesting. I have two books on my bedside shelf about the processing of death in ancient Rome. I've got books about poisons. I've got books about kings and queens. Yeah, it's all about nonfiction for me right now. So the more history I absorb the more is going to just come out in my fiction because that's how it works. It's a very effective, if erratic, recycling system. So that's it. Thank you for listening to me. Wow, that was, as it turns out, a very long episode. But look, nobody's woken up yet to give me Mother's Day brunch, so I think I'm fine. I got away with it. Uh, Yeah, next week we'll be back for more uh, River Divine. Oh, speaking of historical periods, yeah, I don't even know what I'm doing with the historical thing for that. It's canal boats are evergreen, but I think I'm going to need to nail it down a bit more uh, and maybe add some gas lamps because that's what people like to see. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Sheep Might Fly. I promise I'm more put together than this normally. It's been a long week. This podcast was recorded on Palawa land. I acknowledge and pay respect to the Tasmanian Aboriginal people as the traditional and continuing custodians of Lutruita, Tasmania. Sheep Might Fly is produced and edited by Andrew Finch, who will hopefully choose to stay married to me after listening to this podcast. You can <laughs> sign up to my author newsletter for updates. Follow me on Twitter at TansyRR. If you like this podcast, consider supporting it Patreon, where you can receive all kinds of bonus rewards, early ebooks and exclusive stories for a small monthly pledge. 
and please check out my Kickstarter, Time of the Cat. Uh, when I hit $10,000, I'm going to tell people about tea. That's where we're at. See you next week. Thank <laughs> you.